Welcome to another episode of the Digital Built Australia podcast, the podcast that unpacks the ways in which digital technologies and data insights can shape a highly productive and sustainable built environment. My name is Adam Beck, and along with my co-host, Gavin Cottrell, we'll use this podcast to share insights about the places, spaces, and assets that we shape, and the policymakers, practitioners, and researchers and innovators behind the work. So let's get to it. In this episode of the DBA podcast, we talk all things digital, data, and data strategy in particular. And we have two brilliant guests that have joined us. Michelle Tice, who has more than 24 years experience. She's currently a managing partner at GWI based in Brisbane. She spent time as a metadata analyst with the Queensland Cyber Infrastructure Foundation. She's been an e-research analyst, librarian, web manager, and has got qualifications in library and information science. Patrick Bossett also joins us with more than 30 years experience, currently managing director at Future Edge Consulting. Until recently, he was chief strategy data and innovation officer at Essential Energy. He was also executive general manager for transformation and digital strategy at Ausgrid. He was an associate partner at EY, digital transformation director for more than six years at Network Rail in the UK. He's worked at KPMG and also spent time as chief technology officer at software development companies and also with VC portfolios. This is a great episode, friends. We hope you enjoy it. So welcome, Michelle and Patrick, to the DBA podcast. Thank you very much for giving your time today, especially up with the lead up towards uh, the Christmas break. We're going to talk all things digital data today, um, but really want to start with a bit of a personal story from you both. And how on earth did you get into your digital data field? So Michelle, I'll start off with you. What's your sort of personal journey of how you've got into your your senior role at uh, at GWI? Well, it's been a long journey, Gavin. Um, I started out with qualifications in library and information science. Those qualifications set me up to manage information for large-scale organisations. But it got really interesting when I moved into the university sector and I started working on global research data projects and it sort of... um, stemmed an interest in how data can be leveraged and the value that it brings and how people can use it and exchange it and all the things that they did wrong with data and around data. And so that sort of led me into the private sector and um, I'm currently the managing partner at GWI, which provides advice to others about how they can improve what they do with data. No, great, Michelle. And we're going to explore a bit more into that, into this podcast. Patrick, we've known each other for a a while um you've had a, a rich history in terms of uh, career as well but you'd like to tell the listeners a bit more your journey in terms of how yeah. you've got to today of course um i guess gavin you know i've always loved solving puzzles um from a very early age the rubik's um, cube uh author in terms of for those people who don't know one and a half million people have bought your how to complete a rubik's cube patrick is that is that right? Yeah, so that was part of my childhood. Um, I published a solution to the Rubik's Cube, age 12, and um, it, it, much to my surprise, became the fastest-selling book in history. And 
I mean, my love of puzzles started at a really young age. Um, I've just developed that through my career. And I tell my kids, I'm still solving puzzles um, for my job. They're just a bit more complicated these days with all sorts of dimensions like politics and people and money and uh, economics. Um, so, yeah, my, my career really went from solving puzzles to getting into the early days of computer hardware, software, uh, playing around with that. I realized that really the purpose of all of the, the hardware and software stuff is just to move data around and do things with data. And through that, I became really fascinated in what you can do with data. And my career has really been about helping organizations transform what they do through data, particularly big infrastructure organizations. So we've heard a lot about digital and data. What's the difference between digital and data strategies? And Adam's going to sort of uh, ask you a few key questions on this as well. But Patrick, I'll start with you Is and then Michelle, keen to get your thoughts. What's that difference between data and a digital strategy that we hear? It's a big subject. I'll try and keep my summary brief. For me, digital is how you get things in and out of an organization and make things work really well for the users of information. So it's data capture, it's how you portray data and the sort of devices and user interfaces that it reaches you through. Whereas the data itself and data strategies more about helping organizations do things differently, make different types of decisions and unlock value. Over the years, the two have got sort of, they were always very intertwined. And I think more recently, there's a much clearer distinction between the two. Uh, but I don't know, Michelle, if you found the same thing. Yeah, I see them very much as companion documents. Um, for me, a digital strategy looks at how an organisation can leverage technology to better engagement and to improve their business objectives. But a data strategy really focuses on how the organisation can use data to underpin what they're trying to achieve. And it looks at building capability across their organisation. It looks at building really data foundations that can be leveraged for innovative things down the track. Because we all know the garbage in, garbage out scenario. Data strategies help you identify what are your priorities in the organisation and how data, good quality data, can help you um, reach those. Michelle, I... I'm curious about your journey and, and the experience you've had different sectors. Now, Digital Built Australia has a bit of a built environment bent to it. You know, we're not hiding that at all. I I haven't spent a lot of time in other sectors, but, you know, on the periphery, a bit of health, a bit of sort of academia, tiny bit of finance. And at times... I feel really enthused about the future when I see those kind of sectors certainly value data in, in a really strong way to the extent that like sort of data first, you know, data led, data inspired investment and kind of the, the business case isn't really an issue because it's just, you know, it's just what you do in health. If you don't have data, you know, it, the system runs on data. The, the built environment's 
a bit different. It's a bit clunky. It's a bit analog and, you know, it's different. And I know you work, work across sectors, but I'd love you to make some comments around the value of data in different sectors. I don't know how much built environment sort of work you've done or hung around that sort of sector, but maybe it's just me. I don't know, but any views on how different sectors value data from your observations and your experience? Yeah, lots, lots, Adam. Um, so the whole core strategy is about actually trying to get maximum value out of the data that an organisation collects and holds. Different sectors, it, that means different things. So what's valuable in health is different to what's valuable in a built environment sort of sector. In health, data can be life or death. Right, the the accuracy, the timeliness of data is incredibly important, and that's sort of paramount in their um, sector. In other sectors, it's different. There's a different focus. Some of it is maybe on accuracy. Some of it is on um, large scale models or the depth of what you can get. So looking at how you can do predictive sort of work in a particular space. But my work in the built environment is sort of limited to smart city initiatives where I've worked with uh, local government organisations to help them utilise the data that they're collecting from their citizens and their communities to provide people with better options or options or to change the way that things are happening and make a more livable environment for people. And again, you're looking at different things. But when you boil it down... Everybody has to collect data. They have to understand what they need to collect, why they're collecting it, how they manage it, where they store it, how long they have to retain it for. And so regardless of which sector you're working for, I always bring it down to the core. What's important to that sector? What data do they need? What is their regulatory or obligations that they need to abide with in that sector? And when I'm talking about that, I'm thinking about privacy. I'm thinking about human rights. I'm thinking about ethical considerations or the impact of using data in different sectors. And it changes in every sector. So that's why I find this, this area so interesting and diverse. Patrick, as a bit of a sort of a built environment guy, how does... How do you react to what Michelle just said? What What are your comments around this one? Well, first of all, I agree there's so many aspects to the management of data and organize all organizations, particularly bigger ones, are struggling with those, so data privacy and so on. The last 20 years of my career has been spent in critical national infrastructure, so rail, road, utility networks, energy networks. And I found there that information is really incomplete and really siloed. And the expectation by the sort of senior leadership in the organization to be able to make decisions from it is usually way beyond what the data can actually support. And a lot of it is historical. The first big program I set up and, and ran was in rail. And I found that the maintenance data really focused on management of work and the maintenance records was simply a record of any asset that had failed and the work that had been done to rectify it. So the asset register was incomplete. It was only a picture of things that had gone wrong. And even then it was only sort of partially correct. 
and that's a starting point for so many organizations. So in each bit of the value chain, whether it's planning, investment, capital programs, maintenance, and operations, everyone's working with an incomplete data subset. Yet it's only when you bring together the hierarchical asset data with the topological network data, with the geospatial data, whether that's GIS or LIDAR and 3D models, that you can really start answering the difficult and the valuable questions. Um, so I, I found compared to other industries, um, heavy infrastructure is really well behind the starting line in quite a few respects. Patrick, you've talked about in terms of how boards are rapidly gaining more understanding around in terms of the value of data. Digital twins become all the rage over the last three or four years. And what a lot of people are, are starting to realize more around the digital twin is more around a master data management strategy. It's less around the, the sexy fly through 3D visualization, et cetera. It's the ability to visualize, integrate and connect disparate data sets and bring this together in terms of to give us insights that previously were really hard to understand once you apply some analytical and simulation capability. Where does sort of your view in terms of the success of digital twin programs? We, we know that built environments, Michelle, you've, you've made that comment, and Patrick, you know that built environments, owner operators typically struggle with data and information. That's a common, and we see that consistently in our careers when you go from one jurisdictional organization. So how is digital twin going to, sort of work when we've got quite a low base of data maturity or information maturity in terms of Patrick King to get your thoughts first and then Michelle and how you see how digital twins gonna sort of fit into this sort of world that we're in at the moment like most people I think when I first heard of digital twins and started looking at them I really thought it was just a 3D model of the built environment. I think that's most people's perception and starting point. Um, and that can be useful in design if you've got multiple different contractors or designers working on a single project, then having a shared 3D model is fantastic for you know, clash detection and a whole bunch of reasons. But through working with the Digital Built Britain program, I very quickly came to realize that 3D is just one view. Um, actually having a good topological or graph network model of an energy network or a road network or a rail network is to the operations people, a 3D twin of, uh, sorry, a digital twin of their network. And it's an incredibly powerful and useful asset for other people it's the the asset registers and the linkages between assets and the hierarchies that really enables them to do their job. So uh, over time, I've come to a conclusion that a digital twin is a combination of spatial network and asset data and financial and people data that's brought together in whatever way an organization needs that data to answer some really difficult business questions to help unlock value. So it's horses for courses. Um, I know that's a bit of a, a vague answer, but it's um, the longer I've played around with this stuff and helped organizations, the more I've realized there is no one 
definition of digital twin. Yeah, no, thanks for Patrick. Michelle, in terms of what we're seeing, a lot of digital twin work that's happening across the country uh, with, with governments, you've got a lot of in-depth experience in terms of with local government and state government within how how are they going how's how how's it going to be for for people's journeys digital twin when we know where we're at from that information and data it seems like it's the unsexy part of digital twin patrick talked about the nice sort of visualization which uh engages people but the engine room of a digital twin is the data in terms of it's going to be a tough go race do you feel in terms of organizations to get that organisation capability in, in in place, do you think, Michelle? I, I do. I think um, in the built environment, data has always been considered a byproduct, not not the core. And digital twin is going to start to turn that around because people will soon realise that without good data, the right data, the right quality of data, that their digital twin outputs are, are not going to be worthwhile and that there's going to be a lot of investment that will not provide a return. Um, digital twins are driven by data. It's another use of data. So when I always talk about data, I bring things back to that life cycle, which includes a stage around use of the data. Digital twins are one of the ways that data can be used. And for it to be effective, you have to have really good data governance. You have to identify what your critical data is and where it's coming from and what level of quality it needs to be and how what sharing arrangements do you have in place and what are the ethics of using that so there's a lot of disciplines that come into play when you're looking at building a digital twin that's going to be reliable into the future and I think as digital twins advance in their maturity that this acknowledgement is going to get broader and broader. I think I love your point Michelle that that um, digital twins won't be a byproduct. They will actually inform a lot of the decision-making in the future. Mm. Um, we, we, we're seeing a shift in many country, um, well, here in Australia, in the federal government investment priorities um, from building new infrastructure to trying to get more out of existing infrastructure. You can put more cars on the same sort of road space if you manage speed and flow intelligently, you mm. can put more trains on tracks if you manage the signaling digitally more intelligently. But these things can only work if you have a digital model that can drive both the modeling, the investment planning and the decision making. Um, and you end up with a lot more capacity from your existing infrastructure uh, for a lot less investment. And uh, I can see many governments looking at that as a, a really serious way forward. Yeah, and data has to drive that, right, Patrick? Like, yeah. you, otherwise you're making those decisions on intuition or gut feeling. Um, data is the evidence that, that people need to make those decisions. Going back to my information management days, engineering drawings were always one of the biggest challenges that an organisation had to deal with because there was no system that would actually allow you to capture the appropriate metadata or discover them, you know, broadly across an enterprise. And so, you know, that's an example of the information coming out of this sector has never actually been valued or accessible or shared across organisations. And to your point, Michelle, about needing good 
clear data specifications, good governance, uh, good processes for the management of data. That process of getting data from capital programs and construction into the operational world has always been hugely painful um, and very dysfunctional. And I think initiatives like Digital Built Britain, Digital Built Australia are beginning to put frameworks in place to enable a consistent approach to data governance so data can really flow through the whole investment planning, capital programs, mm. maintenance and operations lifecycle. There's still so much to do in that space. I've been uh, part of a couple of conversations and events over the last month and a bit where artificial intelligence and the property sector has kind of been posed as a sort of like, what's the future look like, right? And it's it's quite interesting uh, hearing sort of built environment professionals and policymakers start to sort of really engage in that conversation. And there's a healthy mix of we're freaking out and then a healthy mix of this could be a really powerful tool. I think I want to ask the question of you both, not sort of broad, you know, what does this now mean with AI and data and digital twins? But I think I want to, I think I want to focus it into, and Michelle, I want to start with you. Is the advent of AI and how accessible it is, is it helping us, the broader we, engage with data more and value it more? And therefore, could it be a force for good when it comes to a more data-mature built environment, if I just sort of focus on that sector for a moment? Does that question make sense? Yeah, um, that question does make sense. And um, I absolutely believe it will be a force for good. But I, I also believe that it's very early days. We know it's here and it's going to be here to stay because it's permeated so much of the way that we work, live and play that I think, um, you know, no one is going to supersede this for quite some time. Um, but what concerns me about it is that Generative AI tools are not truth engines. They're, they're trained on large language models and whatever data is put in is indicative of what comes back. And so I think there's a level of assurance that we haven't quite worked out yet in any great depth for the built environment sector. And that assurance sort of looks like verifying the outputs of a AI tool, making sure that we're still abiding with our known standards, our known um, legislative obligations around privacy and the way that we deal with people information or the way that we deal with um, ethical standards and things. And I think that although everyone's scrambling to put together AI principles or AI ethics principles, um, we haven't yet got agreement on how to provide an appropriate level of assurance across outputs. Patrick, but the opportunities oh, are endless. Yeah. Patrick, I'm, your facial expressions I, were kind of interesting. What are your views here? I agree with Michelle that there's an awful lot of governance stuff that has to be put in place for us to use AI in safety-critical infrastructure in an effective and assured way. I'm very excited about AI. It does make data and 
querying data and far more accessible for a lot more people. But it's also uh, potentially quite a lazy way of solving problems that ignores the fact that you do need to specify the data you need. You need to collect it. You need to assure it. And you need to wrangle it and join it in a way that an AI engine can then do useful things with it. And there's an assumption that AI sort of magically does all that other stuff, and it doesn't. So I think over time, we will see private large language models um, being used far more widely, where you know the provenance of the data that's been fed into the model. So you can have a pretty good level of confidence that decisions that are supported by the AI are going to be reliable. But in the short term, back to Michelle, your point about engineering drawings, when I joined uh, the UK rail infrastructure company, we had 17 million unstructured documents that described various bits of the railway and assets on the railway. Um, and using AI as a tool simply to analyze those drawings and try and build the metadata so that you can then start to link drawings with asset numbers, with locations, and start to build the bridge between those data types is a phenomenally useful new tool in the engineering toolbox. So I think even in targeted application, it's hugely valuable to us today. It's a great example. Um, and, and I know um, a lot of the organisations that we're working with are currently looking at sort of private generative AI products at the moment. So that is something that is advancing. But it is always going to come back to the quality of what is going in and what the, those large language models are actually learning from. So even an organisation's internal data is not always of great quality. So this is interesting listening to you both talking about the future in terms of where we're at at the moment in terms of with AI. Before, Adam's going to ask you a key question about what you're most excited for 2024 and beyond. Before we do that, Patrick, we, we hear a lot about how great the things are in the UK in terms of having been here 18 years, originally from the UK, we we look a lot to what the UK government are doing. The two levels of government is looked at in a bit of admiration in terms of getting stuff done. There's less duplication of effort, uh, et cetera. What's a sort of, from a, a UK perspective, a, a leading light example around good quality digital and data strategy from, from your perspective. And then Michelle, I'll ask you the same question, what do you think from a, a, an Australian perspective? So don't be shy, Patrick, if, you, if you've worked on that job, so you, you think that's from your perspective, but yeah, keen to understand for the listeners to understand what, what does good look like from a, a UK perspective? There are so many good examples, but I would say that been in Australia for the last five years, there's, equally good examples emerging here. I think it's just a matter of a skills gap here. So looking to the UK, I, back in 2012, there were, I think, some really big investments made with public money and public infrastructure around setting up asset information organizations within infrastructure businesses. And it's something that I, I've always been very close to. So 
really separating data from IT and recognizing that it is an asset in its own right. I've seen that done really well um, in rail, in utility networks, in energy networks. But really the highlight uh, for me has been the work uh, done at National Highways where they've not only shifted the mindset from a very physical asset-centric view to a data and sort of network-centric view, looking at actually what assets do we need to enhance to deliver a better outcome for customers. So that model of the data model of the road network, the digital twin, actually sits at the heart of decision-making around every part of the business. And what I love about highways and what they've done is they've made a lot of this open source. So if you're looking for how to you know, set up data ontologies and manage that really well in your organization, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's great stuff already there. And I think the UK has a history of that sort of innovation. And it's up to us in Australia now to take advantage of it. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Do you feel that there's a driver from the UK that exports are a, a big driver for them in terms of not only from driving efficiencies internally, but also there's more focus on exports in services and goods and products from, from the UK, from, from Australia? That's, it's a tricky one. Digital Built Britain did have, as part of the business case, um, a, a view that creating expertise would generate a an advisory services export. I don't think it's happening in quite the same way. I think it's people leaving the UK for lots of reasons, Brexit being one of them, and coming to places like Australia to use those skills and capabilities and apply them here. So I don't think it's turned into an export industry, but a lot of the standards that we're working with, uh, like ISO 55000, uh, BS 1192, and where that's gone with BIM, a lot of those things originated in the UK, but I think there's opportunity to do really creative work with them elsewhere. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. So Michelle, in terms of that sort of shining example, Patrick's provided some examples with Highways England in the UK. What sort of uh, you sort of share with the listeners as a shining example um, light here here in Aussie? Yeah, I'm going to weasel out of that a little bit, Gavin. Um, I'm going to answer it <laughs> differently if that's all right. By, by not naming one um, single project or program, but I think we have a lot of different approaches across Australia. We have some states doing things um, on their own, so. You know, we have, for example, a New South Wales digital twin. We have an SEQ for Southeast Queensland digital twin in development. But then we have other cities that have done things like the city of Melbourne have done something quite differently. We have things going on around particular sectors around. There's some excellent examples in the climate change space. We have things going on around rail and transport. And I just think what, what we're missing um, in Australia is a really federated model of all of the good products that actually do exist and actually bringing them together and getting additional value by federating 
that information and data and looking at it from yet a higher level that would give us an additional level of insight. So without naming any particular product, I certainly agree with Patrick around, um, I believe there is a skills gap. I need that. I believe there's a level of literacy that needs to be uplifted in this space. And I believe that more focus needs to come onto data. But I would say that because I'm a data person. And whose role is that, Michelle, to bridge that gap in, in, in skills? Is that government, state governments' uh, um, role? I think that's a shared role. And I think this is where good governance comes into play because there are multiple roles and responsibilities in any successful project that relate to the governance of data. And I believe that that skills gap needs to be developed across all industries and across all levels of government. Hmm. I know, because on my recent travels, I was lucky enough to be in Israel and, and in, in the UK, and there, there seemed to be a lot more awareness at an executive level on the value of data. And it was just seen as, well, of course we need to do this. Why wouldn't we do this? This is the way. And I think, I, and I think the skills from from gap that we see is not only just from a technical perspective whether it's applying ISO 8000 or whatever in terms of from a tech but also strategically training in terms of getting people to understand in terms of that value of data that it becomes a strategic initiative from a top down whereas I see a lot of initiatives some fantastic work done but it's they sort of hit this ceiling within organizations because it's a bottom-up and they, they struggle to, to sort of engage. So I feel like we need to be educating the future leaders uh, of tomorrow with understanding this the value of data and digital. And I think that's not only required to, for doing for existing professionals, but also for our future professionals as well. And I think that's a really missing conversation at the moment of that strategic training and because it seems that's a bit of a weakness for people because they just is, do you see that as well I, I absolutely do see that and I don't think it's any one sector's responsibility I, and I'm also a firm believer that people need to uplift their own literacy and be responsible and and aware of um you know, their own responsibilities when it comes to things like protecting their personal data or sharing data you know so I I just think um, everyone needs to play a role. And again, it, it comes back to good governance of particular programs and sponsorship of programs of work, Gavin. Michelle, your point about a federated model, bringing all these things together rings so true. I think it, it does need to be a top-down thing and it does need to be driven by government. I think as treasuries find the is a little bit more constrained these days. That shift from building new infrastructure to making existing infrastructure work better is really beginning to happen. And I think we'll start to drive that whole digital agenda from the top down much more. I mean, the, the federal government just yesterday announced that it will continue to work with all levels of government to make it easier to get around our cities and suburbs and deliver infrastructure that makes driving on roads safer and that sees more people on trains. This is not about building new roads or new railway lines. It's about building digital models of this infrastructure and looking at how it can work better. I live not too far from the Harbour Bridge in Sydney and 
you know, every morning there's a tidal flow system there where you've got six lanes one way to the other, and in the evening it switches. And depending on the supply and demand, they configure it on a very dynamic basis. To me, that's fantastic use of road space. If you combine flow with digital management of speed, you can get an awful lot more throughput. So I think the potential for applying digital twins and the push from government to do more with infrastructure is really going to, I think, drive a very different future for data practitioners helping organizations over the next few years. I have no doubt that digital and data leadership is essential for us to move forward. But I don't believe that that leadership only comes from government. And I think the roles and responsibilities around leadership also sit with the private sector and industry. And I think that working out how those partnerships should work together better will give us better outcomes. Agree. It isn't just for governments. And I think organisations do need to continue to upskill their employees in data and actually invest in the whole aspect of that data to intelligence operation that they need within their business. I'm seeing really good initiatives um, like the University of New South Wales. They've mm -hmm. set up a data academy that corporates now can engage with to upskill employees. So there are some really good and really high quality resources already in the market. And there's no excuse for corporates who should be protecting and growing the value of their data capital to start investing more in this area. Um, likewise, I'm, I'm involved with some organisations that are empowering women to actually get involved in careers in data. So things like Dharma, which is an industry data management body, um, have a women in data group that are looking at how do we support other women in this industry? How do we encourage young women to come into this industry? How do we help them to build the leadership skills that they need to sort of help us build a better future around digital and data? So on the future, let's talk about 2024. It's an interesting time of year, isn't it? Because you're kind of trying to rush to the end. Some of us are limping to the end, you know, we're looking forward to a break, but it's also a really good time to reflect on what we did and didn't do during the year and maybe reset, refocus, you know, we're halfway through a financial year as well. So always a nice time of year right now to, to think forward. And so last question comes uh, from a, you know, a place of what are you excited about, you know, for 2024? And I might throw in there a sub question as well. And Patrick, I'll go with you first. Uh, the sub question of also, priorities for the collective we when it comes to this data world so what are you excited about and what do you think should be maybe on our radar in terms of priorities for me i i've just gone through a pretty big reset in 2023 after 20 years of working within big infrastructure organizations shaping and leading data enabled programs uh, I've set up my own consultancy, so 2024 is a, a year, I hope, that we'll see growth in that field. But what I'm really focusing on, and I think this is 
uh, a collective thing that organizations need to look at is data skills within organizations. There's so much good work being done around standards. There's so much knowledge out there that you can tap into. But if organizations don't have the skills in-house and they just rely on external consultants, I might be doing myself out of a job, but I firmly believe that organizations need to build that capability internally. And I'm looking forward to working with them. Yeah, brilliant. Michelle, what's exciting you about 2024, if you can think about it, and priorities that we need to keep nudging? Uh, so for me, I think the the innovation that's going to come with AI, I think we're just scratching the surface, I, and that's really exciting for me. It is a use of data that is just exponential, and um, I really look forward to helping organisations wrangle that and get the most out of that. Um, for me, the priorities are actually finding that right balance between applying a level of safeguards um, to protect us humans and, you know, to protect the things around us without stifling that level of innovation. And I think those safeguards are something that we haven't yet worked out. You know, I was reading a post on LinkedIn the other week and the summary of it was kind of, you know what, everyone Everyone, just take a deep breath on AI, okay? There's actually some really, really good stuff in here. And it was talking about our mindset towards it. And I, and I think, Michelle, you, you're right. You know, safeguards are critical. You know, there's always, you know, we got to regulate. The law is there to protect people, absolutely. But it was sort of hinting at we're also at the same time losing sight of the real fantastic opportunities for human development and of course, you know, other great things. So I'm kind of, I'm moving, my scale of interest in AI has gone from sort of meh to kind of, yeah, I I think I'm actually quite excited about this. And I'm way more excited knowing that people like yourself and Patrick are sort of there to, to help us with all of that. So um, yes, I would certainly support uh, the, the excitement from both of you in terms of those areas, but I'm excited that we're going to be able to share this with industry next week. So we're not going to be able to do that unless we finish. Patrick and Michelle, uh, really great conversation. Uh, sometimes Gavin and I didn't have anything to do. You guys uh, certainly took it over and had a great conversation as well. So uh, always a good sign of a, a good dialogue. So thank you both for joining the DBA podcast and wishing you all the best for the upcoming vacation season. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, we hope you liked this episode of the Digital Built Australia podcast. Remember, if you're not subscribing, you can do so. Head to your favourite podcast platform or you can also go to our website, www.digitalbuiltaustralia.com.